You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Episode number 31 of that one time on tour is brought to you by Rockabilia.com with over 500,000 unique items officially licensed by the bands themselves. Rockabilia.com is your one stop shop for everything you need from your favorite band. Christmas is coming up. So when you go over to Rockabilia to buy all your gifts, make sure to put in the promo code PCTOTOT to get 15% off of your entire order. So go check out Rockabilia.com right now. Hey, this is Ryan J. Downey, entertainment journalist and founder of Superhero Artist Management, and you're listening to That One Time on Tour. Hello and welcome to episode number 31 of that one time on tour. As always, I'm your host, Chris Swinney, back with another stellar conversation with somebody in or around the music industry. This week on the show, I get to sit down with my buddy, Ryan J. Downey. Uh, he's the founder of Superhero Management. He also hosts one of my favorite podcasts called Speak and Destroy, which is a podcast all about Metallica. I get to be a guest on his show very soon. I cannot wait for that because I am the biggest Metallica fan in the world. So uh, other than that, Ryan's done some really cool stuff. He is writing a book right now with Andy from Black Veil Brides about Andy's life. He also is a music journalist. He's worked with Alternative Press. He's worked on MTV. He's done all kinds of crazy stuff. So Ryan and I get to talk about a lot of that. We also talk about his past growing up in Indiana, which is where I'm from. He was in a great hardcore band called Burn It Down. And we talk about a lot about that and the scene back then in Indianapolis and whatnot. So I hope you guys are going to enjoy this conversation conversation with Ryan. Before I get to that, I do need to tell you guys about rockabilia.com. You heard at the beginning, go to rockabilia.com, put in the promo code PCTOTOT and save 15%. I also need to tell you guys about Sticker Wolf. They are still a sponsor. They did some stickers for the show. They did our logo. They are great people. They have amazing, amazing stickers. So go to stickerwolf.com or check them out on all the social media platforms. Sticker Wolf. Other than Sticker Wolf, we have Muncie Music Center, which is the store I work at. I'm not going to tell you all about it like I always do. I'm just going to say, go to MuncieMusic.com. If you're in Muncie, Indiana, go to 600 South Mulberry Street. It's a great place. Go check it out. Uh, shout outs to Blake and Dave and Scott and everybody over there for sponsoring the show. Uh, okay, so what's going on in my life? Well, November is going to be weird because uh, my daughter... I haven't really talked about this on the podcast. I want to bring it up a little bit, maybe, you know, raise awareness or whatever. I don't know. Uh, my daughter's perfect. I love her. Her name is Indy Emerson Swinney, but Indy was born with a soft cleft palate or a, a cleft soft palate, however you want to say it. Uh, it's one out of every 600 births in the United States has that. It's the most common birth defect. It's totally isolated. Sometimes there's syndromes associated with it and whatnot, but, uh, my daughter's, it's totally isolated. It does not affect her at all, other than she cannot use a normal bottle because she can't make the suction. It's like a little hole in the roof of her mouth. And um, we have to have surgery to correct it. And the surgery is this month on the 20th. And uh, it's just very stressful. And uh, all you guys out there and, and, and you know, 
all you men and women out there that have children, you know how stressful it can be if something is going on with your with your kid. And, you know, it's not like a crazy invasive surgery. I mean, it's but it's scary, you know, because uh, anytime they have to put your kid under, you know, put your kid to sleep and, and, and do that. It's just, it's a scary thing. And she's always been with us and my wife, Felicia and I'll have to be in, you know, the other room while it's happening. It's just, it's very scary. And, uh, I didn't know if I was going to talk about it on the podcast and some of you guys might think this is kind of boring. You know, if you don't have kids, you don't understand, but it's, it's really kind of stressing me out. It's stressing my wife out. And the podcast is kind of this release creative thing that I have. And, um, I just wanted to let you guys know, cause I, I get emails all the time and you guys seem to care a lot about the show and, uh, that's what's going on in my life. So, uh, yeah, it's just very stressful when, when something's going on with your kid and I love Indy like, more than life itself and it's scary. So, uh, think I've had some people reach out to me and, and kind of ask me what's going on because I said this show was going to kind of be kind of spotty in November. So that's what's going on. But uh, everything's great, and um, I just want to let you know that there might be a week or so here and there where there isn't a new episode, but we'll get right back on track after all of this stuff is over. So thank you so much for the calls and um, the emails about, you know, trying to ask me what's going on, but that's what's going on. So I just, you know, keep my daughter Indy in your thoughts, and uh, if you guys pray and stuff like that, that's cool too. And, uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm going to stop rambling about that. Other than that, uh, things are going really well. Um, I'm working a lot. I'm teaching the kiddies guitar and, uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's what's going on here. It's getting cold in Indiana. The other day it was really nice. We went out to the park, but, uh, today it was insanely cold. So winter is coming and, uh, yeah, that's what's going on with me. So make sure that you are following us on all of the social media platforms. It's at T-O-T-O-T podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review us in the iTunes store or wherever you consume your podcasts. I know that me, myself, whenever I'm looking for a new podcast to check out, I always read the reviews and uh, it really helps. So, you know, if you want to help the show out and, you know, tell a friend, share it, whatever. But if you leave us a review, it really helps. So thank you if you've already done that. Uh, but if you want to do that, that would be great. Preferably five stars, maybe four, whatever, whatever you want to do. Just don't give us any ones. So, uh, yeah, if you want to be a sponsor, you can hit me up. T.O.T.O.T. podcast at Gmail dot com and we'll figure something out. Uh, companies, bands, whatever. I'm always looking for sponsors. So hit me up. And that's about it. Thank you guys so much for listening to me ramble. I love you guys. The support has been wonderful for the show and I really, really appreciate it. So here we go. We're going to jump right into my conversation with Mr. Ryan J. Downey from Superhero Management, the Speak and Destroy podcast, which is a personal favorite of mine and uh, a million other things. Ryan's a great guy and we had a wonderful conversation. So without further ado, here we go. And I'm on the line with Ryan J. Downey. Uh, how you doing today, Ryan? I'm well, sir. How about you? I'm doing great, man. It's nice to talk to a fellow Hoosier. I was just about to ask you, how is my home state doing right now? Uh, it's actually nice. We uh, were having a fall last year. We didn't really have a fall. I've only been back in the state for the past two years. And uh, my wife's from Birmingham, Alabama. So when we moved up here, because we were living at the beach down at Gulf Shores, we moved up here because we had my son. And uh, she's like, I can't wait for fall. And one day it was 85 and the next day it was 30. So we didn't get a fall last year, but we have a nice, <laughs> nice autumn going on right now. Yeah, that is the one season that I miss. I don't really miss winter. Um, I miss the idea of winter, maybe, but I but I do miss fall. I miss the the changing of the leaves. I, I'm I haven't been in 
See, I moved to California from Indiana in February of 2001. So it's been quite some time now. And that's uh, a long time, man. <laughs> yeah. And the, the last time that I was back to visit was actually 2008. So even that's been a long time. Um, I did realize, um, last summer, the guys from demon hunter were playing uh, Chicago open air festival and they did uh, a couple of warm up shows uh, as like an underplay in a small club in Nashville uh, where most of them live uh, a day or two before. So I flew out um, from the Nashville shows and then rode up with the band from Nashville to Chicago. And I realized as we drove past my exit, that was like my exit from the freeway all through middle school and high school. It just then occurred to me, Oh, we're passing through Indianapolis today. Yeah. <laughs> like I didn't, we didn't stop. You know what I mean? Like I just, I, I kind of didn't even occur to me till it was already come and gone. And, uh, and I ended up flying home directly from Chicago. So technically, Technically, I was there. I can tell you've been out in California for a while because you're calling it a freeway and not an interstate, right? <laughs> Dude, you know how many times I got dinged for saying interstate when I first got here? I, yeah, I totally have been reconditioned. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, you grew up in Indiana, so I'm sure, you know, you, you call like a soft drink a pop. I used to do that as well. <laughs> and then when I moved down south and moved down to Gulf Shores, everybody called it soda or some people from like the far south called it Coke. Everything was a Coke. So now I call yeah, it soda. Like every, every tissue is a Kleenex or yeah. every bandage is a Band-Aid. <laughs> every yeah. Band-Aid. Yeah, that's right. So uh, I, I still try to not do all the Indiana stuff. Like I don't put an R in the word toilet. How do you, how do you pronounce, um, you know, the animal that uh, lycanthropes when they transform at the full moon? Are, are <laughs> how, how, how do you say that word? Werewolf. Uh, okay. Yeah. Cause my dad says woof. Yeah. 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 Well, my, says, my, uh, my aunt says, says my aunt says dishes and fiches. My mom says toilet and Washington DC. So yeah, I, I try not to get into that Indiana thing. Yeah. There's a lot of S's that get added to things too. Like, uh, Kroger becomes Kroger's. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Marsh becomes marshes. I was telling my mom that the other day because you know, uh, here in the Midwest, we have a big department store kind of grocery store called Meyer. And, mm-hmm. and she always calls it, I'm going to Myers. I'm like, well, you're just going to one Myers. So you're just going to, yeah. to Myers. And, and part of me thinks, are they saying that like, it's because like Fred Meyer owns it. So it's like, you know, I'm going to Downey's. Yeah. Like, it's like, like apostrophe S on Meyer. Right. 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 But yeah, my dad says, you know, there's a wolf up on the roof. Uh, <laughs> and they also, the word doll, a lot of uh, people in my family pronounce it dowel. Okay. Which you know, I don't know where the L come, the extra L comes from the W or whatever that is. Well, it's funny that we're talking about this. Cause my, like I said, my wife is from Alabama and she doesn't really have a, a, a Southern accent at all. But, uh, we were talking the other night. I'm like, how do you say windowsill? And just like window seal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's just little yeah. tiny things like that. I guess it's regional, you know? So yeah. And English is already complicated enough and has so many rules that don't make sense relative to a lot of other languages. Yeah. Um, it's got to be, I can only imagine for non-native speakers learning the language. Uh, immersion is one thing when you're really young, but I mean somebody who's like, you know, an adult who's like, okay, I'm going to learn English. Like, gosh, it's got to be rough hearing all these different pronunciations from all these different dialects around the country. I mean, that's the thing too. I've, I've done a lot of traveling from, you know, playing music and whatnot. And, and <clears throat> I just remember when I was in the Czech Republic, I was in Prague, I I had to use my Google translator all the time. And I was thinking, man, 
I can't get by at all over here, but I know a lot of people down south where I live that were from the Czech Republic that did very, very well here in English. Right, right, right. That's a great point. Yeah. I just I and then when I was in uh, when I was in Ecuador, like I've been all over South America and when I was in Ecuador, I could not find one person that spoke English. It was like the first place I'd ever been in my life where they didn't kind of cater to the West. They didn't cater to like the American thing, you know. And uh, I met one police officer. I was trying to find a place to pee. <laughs> and he was like, he didn't understand what I was saying. I was like, pee. And he goes, oh, and he took me to the bathroom. I, I mean, I could have said banyo, but I mean, he just, it didn't work out. You know? <laughs> yeah. So uh, I want to ask you, um, you you know, you've played in, in a, a fairly successful band from Indiana. I mean, I grew up around here. I mean, I'm pretty sure our bands back in the day played together. I'm a little bit younger than you, but I remember Burn It Down was a really big deal for me just because, you know, you guys seemed like you got out, you, you put a record out, you were doing it. So what led you to that path? Like what made you want to play music in the first place? What was like your first musical memory? Ah, that's a great question. Um, I mean, music has been a huge part of my life and, and obviously continues to be, um, almost as long as I can remember, uh, some of my more kind of transformative experiences growing up, uh, you know, briefly, um, the first concert I ever went to is my mom took me to Kenny Rogers and the Oak Ridge boys at the Indiana state fair. Great concert. Um, <laughs> well, that's the thing is, uh, you know, the first concert that I went to on my own steam without a parent with friends, was Dio and Megadeth at Market Square Arena. Um, More of my style. At the time. <laughs> uh, and, well, and what's funny is that depending on the social situation, I will either one will be my go-to as my first concert. Hey, what was your first concert, man? Dio and Megadeth. You <laughs> know, and, I mean, I've been in, I've literally been in situations where it's cooler to say my first concert was Kenny Rogers and the Oakers Boys. Uh, but, uh, you know, musically, I the, the first uh, vinyl that I ever owned is I had the 45 of Neil Diamond's coming to America. Okay. Um, and I have vivid memories of being like four years old and singing that in the mirror with a hairbrush. So it's like somewhere in the, I mean, you know, age four, I was already, uh, like connecting the dots between listening to music and participating in it and performing it somehow. Um, the first LP that I owned was sticks paradise theater. And from there, you know, through elementary school, I had the benefit of an older brother. He's five years older than me, who was always into really cool things, basically. Um, you know, he taught me about Adam and the Ants and uh, Hanoi Rocks and, some, you know, things that were things that had broken through and had some success in America, but weren't mainstream. You know, he wasn't my brother wasn't pushing like Michael Jackson and. Uh, new edition and whatever was big at the time on me, you know, he was, he, he got me very hip to like the new romantic stuff. And, uh, he was really into Prince, uh, really, really early on, like pre 1999, um, Prince. And, uh, I remember, um, you know, uh, waiting up to watch the MTV world premiere of the windows cry video. And I mean, I'm su super young at the time and that's all my brother and my mom also, who raised my brother and I as a single mom from the time I was four to about 11. Um, she was really into Johnny Cash, Conway Twitty, Crystal Gale, um, Alabama, a lot of, um, 
classic country stuff and country of the, what would have been contemporary country, I suppose, of the eighties, Dolly Parton. Um, you know, I remember she took me to see the movie nine to five because Dolly Parton was in it (laughs) and I was probably way too young. Um, great movie. Uh, yeah. And then, you know, because I had this background from my brother that I was then able to take and sort of find my own things. I found generation X. I found, uh, the sex pistols, black flag, um, the cure, the Smiths. This was stuff I was listening to in middle school. That's crazy. Um, and I remember, yeah, in fifth grade, uh, there were some kids that called me Ryan the rocker. Uh, not, not as a, not as a compliment, by the way. Uh, cause I mean, this is Indiana in the eighties, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. and I was, I was wearing these like fake leather pants and sleeveless shirts and I had a mullet and I would do the like, you know, kamikaze bandana and all this stuff, you know, in elementary school. Um, and, uh, it was not popular. <laughs> I remember literally getting bullied, um, and ganged up on by a group of kids at the bus stop one morning, this would be sixth grade because I wore van sneakers. Really? And literally that's what they were making me fun of, making fun of me for, which is, you know, pretty funny to put in a modern context. Um, so yeah, and I had my, my older brother to, to thank for a lot of that stuff. And then high school, middle school, honestly, late middle, you know, seventh, eighth grade in high school is when I really got into, um, kind of fell headfirst into the thrash metal movement. I actually, at the time skipped over power metal and hair metal and a lot of the gateway things that a lot of people get into went back and discovered a lot of it. But at the time I went right from, uh, Adam and the ants and Billy Idol into Megadeth and Metallica and Slayer and Sacred Reich and Death Angel. And, and that was all because I had a friend who, um, was really into hair metal. He was into stuff like Crocus and, Y&T and stuff like that. He bought a cassette of Megadeth piece cells, but who's buying by mistake thinking it was going to be like a hair metal record, <laughs> put it on and was like, what the hell is this? And gave it to me literally just to get rid of it. And I put it on on a whim and immediately fell in love. Like my life transformed. It was like, you know, it was, it was almost like immediately I had puffy white sneakers and tight ripped jeans and a <laughs> denim jacket, you know, it was That's like awesome, immediate man. And then that carried me through seventh, eighth, ninth grade. And then somewhere around towards the end of my freshman year, a similar experience, a buddy of mine who's, who's since passed away, um, was really into punk rock and he had Liberty spikes and a leather jacket and all that sort of thing. And was really into the exploited and, you know, stuff like that. Uh, kid who taught me about the misfits. Um, he bought, Revelation Records, New York City Hardcore, the way it is compilation by mistake at the mall, <laughs> thinking it was going to be all punk rock and was like, what the hell is this? And gave it to me just to get rid of it. And that was another uh, transformative experience where um, I discovered the hardcore scene through that. Uh, so to answer your question specifically about playing music, uh, in ninth grade, um, I met a couple of kids at my high school uh, you know, we had kind of the heavy metal lunch table. It wasn't even really enough to fill a full lunch table. It's like half the lunch table, you know, but there's like the five or six kids or however many of us that were into metal that were at our school. We all kind of found each other. And a couple of kids who were a year older than me had a band. And that was just, you know, mind blowing to me. The idea that, um, kids my age could, 
could be in a band, yeah. you know, and, and, you know, they hadn't played any shows. They hadn't recorded anything. They hadn't really done anything, but just the fact that it existed, you know, was, was crazy. And somehow, um, I got asked to sing for their band. So I remember they gave me a list of songs to sing. They were all covers. Um, and I remember kind of practicing at home and my older brother who himself was a musician at that point telling me, Hey, you know, when you show up to your friend's place, the the songs aren't going to sound like this. (laughs) Like, you know, he's like, he's like, I'm sure you're nervous that you don't sound like these vocalists, but something you should know, you know, to relax you a little bit before you go, they're not going to sound like these drummers and guitar players. Um, and yeah, I went over and, uh, we did creeping death and I'm bored by, by death angel. Um, uh, am I evil? Which of course to us was a Metallica song, but of course was a diamond head song. Uh, you know, a bunch of sanitarium, mostly Metallica covers actually. <clears throat> and they had a couple of originals and, um, through doing that band, um, that transformed, uh, around the time I discovered hardcore into a band called clear sight, which, uh, we never recorded anything, never put anything out, but we did manage to play one show. And that's my, that's my band that, that that's my first show experience. I was about 15. There was no, and I didn't, I didn't figure this out until later, but we were in fact the first straight edge band ever in Indianapolis. Wow. Um, Indianapolis had had a couple straight edge kids, but there really wasn't much of a straight edge scene. And, uh, my buddy, Matt Reese and I actually discovered some other straight edge kids on the other side of town. We lived on the South side and we, we discovered some kids on the North side via the classified section of maximum rock and roll fanzine. <laughs> and we actually, we so, had three of us actually, actually have a group chat called MRR classified section. So it, it <laughs> took a fanzine from the West coast to bring kids together on two different sides in, in, in Indianapolis. <laughs> yeah. And that was also some of my first writing experiences. I wrote some of the scene reports in MRR when I was still in high school, but, uh, I, without going on a million tangents, um, that developed into this, you know, we did this band called clear sight and our impression of straight edge, which was really just something we knew about from fanzines and from records from other parts of the country was that it was positive. You know, everything was very seven seconds and youth of today. And, uh, you know, just want to like live, live, live a better life and reject the, like, you know, jock mentality of like getting wasted and the, you know, date rape culture and all all that stuff that you're going to encounter in like, you know, the late eighties and early nineties in Indiana and probably still in a lot of places. Um, that was our impression of what straight edge was, that it was a very positive unifying, um, high spirited, high energy subculture. So we, you know, barely had a band. We actually used the fill in drummer from, for another band because finding a straight edge drummer was basically impossible. <laughs> um, and you know, no one wanted to put us on a show or anything. So we organized our own show and we actually rented this community center in Southport that happened to be next door to the police station. <laughs> there you go. Uh, rented this community center. We asked a couple other local punk bands to play with us, um, made the flyers, put flyers up around school, did the whole thing. Well, there was another band at our high school at the time, uh, called radiation sickness who were like a crossover, uh, kind of drunk punk band, you know, um, they, uh, they were super into drugs and partying and whatever, it never occurred to us that they would be threatened and or irritated 
by the mere existence of a straight edge band. Yeah. Um, it just never occurred to us that that would be something that would be offensive to people. And we were all, yay, seven seconds, everything's positive, you know, minor threat. Um, and here we were being bullied within a subculture that a lot of people escape into to get away from being bullied by the mainstream people, you know? So they took our flyers and, um, drew like, you know, beer bottles and Jack Daniels all over it. And, you know, wrote a bunch of disparaging stuff. And anytime we put up stickers, we made these stickers. Our bass player's dad worked at, uh, was an executive at Xerox. <laughs> so we made all these stickers and, um, they would deface them and tear them down. And, and we just didn't understand. We were like, why are we, why are we being picked on for like trying to be like fun punk rockers that are drug free? So we played this one and only show and these guys from this other band came to the par- the show, but stayed in the parking lot, never came inside and drank like a case of beer and a bunch of liquor and left all the cans and bottles everywhere in an attempt to sabotage us with the police who were in the department next door. And there's so many layers to this, by the way, because because looking back, it's like, how unpunk is it to try to mess with other punks yeah. by ratting them out to the cops? Like, <laughs> Like, okay, you hate straight edge kids, but you're narcs. Like, what is this? You know, like, yeah, um, that was a transformative moment in the sense that we, that band existed for that one and only show because after that whole experience, we became part of what at the time was a brand new thing, which is the militant straight edge thing. Um, we had read an MRR about some bands from Cleveland, like Die Hard. Uh, who took a more militant approach and we had just discovered the judge seven inch and then the judge full length album. And these were straight edge guys who stood up for themselves, who, who put, who pushed back against being bullied by other people on the punk scene. And that was, um, we changed the name of the band to hardball. <laughs> the first, the first song we wrote was called payback and it was about getting revenge on all these people that had bullied us. And that was really the first real actual band. And that was still high school days, you know, 15, 16. Uh, but we, we made an actual demo that we dubbed on cassettes and Xeroxed covers and, you know, cut and paste artwork and all that sort of thing. Uh, we played shows locally. Um, there was another straight edge band from the North side that formed around the same time called split lip. And I remember we were, we were trying to out tough each other with our band names <laughs> Um, and they became good friends of ours and we, we played with them, uh, very often and, uh, integrity, uh, had put out their demo and then their first seven inch around that time. And I'd become friends with Dwid, the singer for integrity. And we were very much, um, complementarian with them and, and very influenced by them. And, and also coming from similar backgrounds where we were pulling from things like Sam Hain and the misfits, uh, and, uh, you know, goth and, uh, and our met thrash metal backgrounds and pouring that into hardcore, which at the time was a very much a new, uh, by no means am I saying we were inventing that. Um, and of course we all know Atreyu invented metalcore like 15 <laughs> years later. But, yeah, I, I just read that on the internet the other day. Actually. Yeah. I, I love Alex, but I understand the point he was trying to make. Yeah, I got fun. it. Um, but yeah, uh, we, we were definitely part of that very early, late eighties, early nineties kind of intermingling of, of that stuff. And, uh, which, which puts you again in a position where you don't really fit in anywhere. Cause you're, 
as much as you have elements of different scenes, each scene also has a reason to reject you. Yeah. Uh, but we were able to, through doing that band without making this too long, extra long winded. Um, we actually put out a seven inch. Um, we got connected with a record label in Michigan who sent us a couple hundred bucks to go into the studio. Uh, our demo had been like a four track recording, uh, that our bass player had engineered, I think. Um, and then we actually got to go in into a, a real studio for, you know, half a day and make the seven inch. And then that label ended up folding before they released it, um, gave us the recording back. And then we ended up getting that out through another label. Um, and we learned some early lessons about the quote unquote music business back then, because that second label, um, changed all of the artwork without talk, talking to us. Um, put in uh, a disclaimer in the insert that the lyrics weren't to be taken seriously because we had songs about like killing drug dealers and you know militant stuff, and the lyrics were at the time meant to be taken seriously. And this guy they did that without your knowledge, without they our just... consent or knowledge. And then worst of all, worse than even changing the the cover art, um, they never sent us a single copy of the seven inch. And they made T-shirts and long sleeves. And, and for the next couple of years, I would see people with hardball merch at hardcore shows. And I never owned any. That's um, fun. Yeah. And a, a few years later, some point around like the mid 90s, I actually got a hold of the guy who put out that seven inch. And he graciously gave me the number to the pressing plant where he had done the seven inch. Uh, and we were able we pressed up a couple hundred of our own. Um it was essentially a repress of the one he did, but we made new covers and all that sort of thing. But anyway, that, that the, the fun part of all that is that was my first band that played shows. Uh, we played out of town. We played in uh, Chicago in a place called club blitz, which was actually Tony victory's basement. Um, <laughs> awesome. and that, that was back when victory records was two, seven inches. Yeah. Um, I actually brought Tony's band, uh, my, my friend, the guitar player from hardball and clear sight and myself, we did a show for even score, which was Tony victory's old band and trench mouth, which featured Fred Armisen on drums. Wow. Unbeknownst to us at the time we brought Fred Armisen's. Yeah. It's funny. I actually ran into him at the MTV movie awards. Um, obviously many, many years later. And, uh, I brought up that, Hey, uh, do you happen to remember playing the beach Grove VFW hall in about <laughs> 1990? I, my friend and I did that show and he totally remembered the show and we talked about it for a few minutes. This funny. is the second episode in a row of my show that his name has been brought up. I, I had Pete, Pete Parada from the offspring was on last week and, uh, he was saying that, you know, he played with Devo. He went out and did some shows with Devo and when he wasn't on, on tour with Devo, Fred actually played with Devo. Wow. So it's crazy that his name keeps coming up. I need to meet Fred. That's he seems amazing. like a good guy. Yeah, he, he's he's obviously deep roots in our all this this thing of ours, as I like to call it. But uh yeah, so that was my my uh first real band. And it's funny, I, by no means was it ever a popular band, even even in the hardcore scene, but it did allow us to yeah, like I said, we played in Louisville, Chicago, Detroit. And this was a lot of like, you know, my dad didn't know I was playing in those cities. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> a lot of sneaking off, uh, still in high school. Um, our drummer at the time, the drummer in hardball was 19 and we used to call him uncle Keith because 
when you're 16, a 19 year old seems like they're 20 years older than you. Oh yeah. (laughs) Whereas, uh, whereas now I have friends where there's like a 10, 15 year age difference in either direction. And we seem like peers, you know? Um, but, uh, but yeah, and, and we got to know the guys from Endpoint and some other bands that were kind of starting at that time. And of course, Split Lip, uh, went on to become a very real band and, uh, changed their name to Chamberlain. And, um, they actually just, did a series of uh, 20th anniversary shows for like their third album. So it was like, you know, they, uh, <clears throat> they, you know, they influenced like the gas line anthem and Texas is the reason. And a lot of kind of those emo, uh, type, you know, the old sort of definition of emo, they were pretty pivotal band for that scene. But, um, yeah. So after that, um, you know, post high school, uh, I, I was in a, a couple different bands that were more sort of indie rock oriented and we would make demos and play shows locally, but never anything that really, uh, went anywhere. Can you tell me the names of some of those bands? Cause I mean, since I'm from here, I'm just trying to see, I remember, I'm trying to remember like, you know, some of the bands, maybe I heard of you guys. I don't know. Um, there was a band called Hearst. Uh, that's, uh, that seems familiar. Maybe. I don't know. It was kind of Fugazi, Drive Like Jehu. Um, it, honestly, the musical side of it was much more the other guys' uh, stuff that they listened to. But it was it was very political. We were really into Rain Like the Sound of Trains, uh, one of the, like a Discord band at the time. Um, but yeah, and we we played kind of around the Midwest, but it never, you know, we didn't release anything more than a demo, and the demo actually came out after we broke up. Um, but yeah, so. Burn It Down started in 1997. And what's funny is the original group of hardcore dudes that I came up with in the late 80s and early 90s had all at that point, you know, moved on to indie rock and um, alt country. And, you know, we're doing all this other sort of stuff. And it was actually kind of funny to my original peer group that I was suddenly in a hardcore band again in 97 because it was like, you know, aren't you too old for this shit? Um Whereas in retrospect, I was only like 22, (laughs) (laughs) but at the time it definitely was seemed like, you know, my, uh, my going back, the old veteran going back to the hardcore scene band. Um, did you guys, you guys formed in 97. That's, uh, that's the year I graduated high school. My band was doing a lot of stuff. I'm trying to remember, did you guys ever play at like the community building in Anderson, Indiana, maybe? We very well might have. I know we because we played with you guys once or twice. We didn't like like hang out or anything. But my old band was called Chronic Chaos. We were like kind of metal mixed with punk. And definitely remember the name. We may play together in Muncie, Indiana. Yeah, we played in we Muncie played all the time because that's where I live right now. Yeah, that's that's, that's what I thought. Yeah, we, we we played in Muncie quite quite often. We did Bloomington. We did Indianapolis, obviously. We and you know, you, you know, like Jonathan Newby from Brazil used to be London. Yes. Yeah. Jonathan's a good friend of mine. I played bass in Brazil for a while after okay, Chronic yeah. Chaos went away. So I know we Newby, had that connection. Newby did our, a lot of our shows in Muncie and we played with like the Juliana theory and under oath and uh, yeah, a lot yeah. of shows that he did, um, in the, uh, late nineties in Muncie. I think we probably played with you guys in Muncie. And then I think I seem to remember that we played with you guys at the Emerson or something. It was like some kind of festival at the Emerson, like probably not sloppy new year. Like sloppy seconds used to have their new year's show. It might, did you guys ever play that? We did do that one year. I think maybe that was it. Then the one at the Emerson. I don't know. Yeah, we did. We did. We did that one year at the Emerson. Um, and, uh, and that was early days for burn it down. And that was a pretty significant show for us locally because that put us in front of 
you know, Sloppy Seconds was the, the arguably the biggest punk band to come from Indiana. And those New Year's shows were a big deal and it was packed and sold out. And we were able to do our own show in January. It might've been the January after that show, or it might've been the next year, but we did it. We did it. Yeah. You know what? I think it was January 98. Um, we headlined the Emerson and, uh, drew like 400 plus kids, which wow. for was the first time a hardcore band had done that since split lip was doing it, you know, five, six years before. Um, and that was a very significant thing for us. And that was, you know, when we started to feel like we had some momentum that we could do something, um, you know, interesting or cool or engaging beyond just jamming in our practice space. You know? So you guys, uh, you guys eventually in 2000, you released the full length, let the dead bury the dead on escape artist records. How did the relationship come about with escape artists? Um, so around that time, we were, uh, I was already a music journalist at that point. So I had relationships with a lot of publicists and different staff people at different labels and was getting to know people in bands. I also did fanzines throughout the nineties. Um, so, you know, I had a lot of great friendships with a lot of people that were willing to give my new band a chance and vice versa. You know, I remember getting sent, um, the Cole SEP on earache and uh, a cassette copy of the first Dillinger record. And, you know, things like where you're just all kind of trying to help each other and friend of a friend and that sort of thing. Um, so it was kind of, I don't want to say easy, but I definitely had an advantage in terms of tapping into um, some existing kind of networks. So the original Genesis of the band, I'm sure you, you remember a band from Indianapolis called ice nine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so ice nine, their bass player announced to the band one day that he was going to be moving to California. Um, his move wasn't to, for a few more months and half the band, you know, there were six guys in the band, half the band said, well, if you're moving, let's just break up. The other half of the band said, well, we'd like to continue playing together at least until he moves, you know, um, there's no reason to stop. We've got another six months. So the bass player drummer and one of the guitar players kept jamming together. Um, not as ice nine, but with some unheard kind of, you know, final era of ice nine instrumentals and things like that. I somehow talked my way into coming over to some of those jam sessions and, uh, singing for them. And then it became, Hey, we, you know, we have some cool songs. We have something cool and fun happening here. Um, we should play a show. And we ended up playing two shows locally, uh, before we had a name, we didn't have a name for the band. And we played two shows without a name and we recorded four songs and a cover um, just for the heck of it. And then Todd, the bass player, moved away as planned. Um, the drummer then went off backpacking in Europe. So the guitar player and I, John Zepps, who was kind of a, a local fixture and, and I imagine still is, uh, you know, he'd been in the band Transgression in the 80s and, you know, done a lot of cool stuff around indie. He ran a record store and a music store and um, was the guitar player and through all of ice nine, he and I were like, let's try to do this as like a real band. You know, these four songs we made are cool. Those two show shows we played were fun. So I got my friend Sean out here in California who ran a label called uprising to agree to release those songs as a seven inch. Um, Sean actually suggested the name, burn it down. 
he actually named our band. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, we did the Burn It Down self-titled 7-inch on Uprising. Uprising was the label that would later go on to put out uh, the first Fallout Boy album yeah. and Mills uh, and some other stuff. But um, So Sean put out our first 7-inch, and from there, uh, we became sort of a real band. Um, the next EP was the first release for us on escape artist and also the first escape artist release, I believe. Um, escape artist was two guys who at the time worked at relapse records. Um, one guy worked in the art department and the other guy was, was, uh, I believe he was a publicist who became like label manager and he, he was at relapse for a long time. Um, those two guys, Gordon and Adam were just good friends of mine. And I think I had, tried to get burn it down, signed to relapse. And those two said, you know, this, this doesn't really fit in here. Um, but we're starting our own label on the side. We'd like to put out your records, um, on the side. And, uh, we're also talking to Aaron Turner from Hydrahead records. He has a new band called ISIS. And we're going to be putting his record out. So the first two escape artists releases were burn it down and ISIS. Um, and then through that relationship, we, you know, we played a lot of shows with ISIS and got to know those guys and whatever. And yeah, they put out our, our EP eat, sleep, mate, defend, which came out as a mini CD and, um, 10 inch. And, uh, and then, yeah, escape artist was the label for our full length. Uh, and somewhere, somewhere in there after the two EPs and before the full length, we did a split with the band race trader on trust kill records. Okay. Um, which came out in Europe on the label good fight or not good fight, good life. Uh, and was on trust in America, but, but yeah, escape artist was basically our label. If we were going to claim a, a record label, how was the, like the, how was the record received when it came out? Um, uh, it was interesting because I, it's a record that I heard more positive things about after the fact. Um, at the time, you know, we, we had, we were, with the record, we really indulged the full breadth of our collective influences going all the way back. You know, we our bass player, Jason McCash, uh, who has since passed away. Uh, he was very immersed in doom metal and, you know, stuff like St. Vitus and the obsessed and, and Zepps was into dazzling Killman and kiss a goodbye. And a lot of this like really noisy stuff. And then Bob, our drummer, who I actually went to high school with, uh, Bob and I both came from, um, you know, a real thrash metal background. And him and I also brought a lot of the hardcore. And then I was also into, um, really, uh, you know, a lot more melodic stuff, a lot of, I guess, alternative rock, you could say. And, you know, I was into things like Depeche Mode and, um, you know, even like Stone Temple Pilots and stuff like that. So we really took all of that, you know, anything from Celtic Frost <laughs> to Emperor and tried to just pour all of it into an album, uh, a concept album at that. And so, you know, there were people at the time that we wouldn't have expected to love the record who did like Ben for the singer for Soylent Green and Goat Whore was a big early supporter of the album. Um, the guys from in flames fell in love with the album, fell in love with us, took us on tour wore our t-shirts on, you know, broke their no band t-shirt rule to wear burn it down shirts. That's um, awesome. And, you know, and that was all great. But then in the hardcore scene, we got a lot of crap for having melodic singing yeah, and for putting a girl on the album cover. Um, people told us uh, having a girl on the album cover was uh, sexist. We actually played a show 
uh, right shortly before we broke up where a huge argument broke out. It was at this punk collective in Bloomington and a huge argument broke out over the poster and the album cover and how it was uh, misogynistic and all this other stuff, which really kind of blew my mind because the, 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 the record was a concept record about the death of my mother and the album cover was a photograph of a girl who was a close friend of mine at the time uh, who was surrounded by uh, all of these zombies and demons that were essentially kind of coming out of the back. Like you had to, the zombies were with this like metallic ink where you had to kind of hold the CD cover sideways to even see them. And the zombies were designed by one of my best friends, this guy named Drew Pierce, who um, did uh, monster makeup and effects and went on to, he also moved to California and he worked on, movies for Rob Zombie and TV shows like Heroes and Grimm. And, you know, he's done that as a career now. But but anyway, to me, it was the, the record cover was like taking two really good friends of mine and combining their talents to create this image that would represent this whole uh, concept about life and death and the afterlife and the horrors and traumas of, of adolescence and all this stuff. Uh, and, and it's like, what was the it, argument on the other side? I guess I'm just not, I, I, that it was, that it, that it was suggestive and sexual and that, uh, it was a woman in peril, um, of these like male zombies were going to kill her or something. I don't know. The zombies to me were androgynous first of all. And yeah. secondly, I don't think that it was, uh, um, I mean, God, it wasn't like a Rolling Stones album cover. You know what I mean? It wasn't, it wasn't intended to be sexual. Uh, and of course, what's funny to me, you know, I made a joke about Atreyu earlier, but what's funny to me is just a couple of years later, there's an Atreyu record with a vampire girl in her underwear. Yeah. Um, with all kinds of singing choruses that went gold, you know? So it's like, we were definitely on to something, but it was a little too soon. Um, and the reason why I say it, it seems like it was better received after the fact is that, when I moved to California, you know, after the band broke up, uh, I would meet people like Howard Jones, who later went on to sing for Killswitch, um, Brandon from 18 Visions and James Hart from 18 Visions and Brandon went on to do Bleeding Through and all these bands that became pretty significant in this metalcore movement of the mid 2000s that really loved that record and were really, you know, Brandon's even wearing a Burn It Down shirt inside the first Bleeding Through record. Um, you know, I met a lot of people like that who were, who loved that album and, and that I really appreciate, you know, the EPs, I cringe when I hear them, the album I'm still very proud of. And while we were never like a successful band, um, it is gratifying that bands who became successful, um, have given it props and, and had an appreciation for it. So well, yeah, Ed, Ed Rose produced the record, correct? Yes. How how, yeah. how was it working with Ed? I've got friends. The guys in Emory worked with Ed. Uh, the guys in Beautiful Mistake. I, we did some shows with them back in the day. They did a thing with Ed. How was your experience working with him? Amazing. Um, we went to Ed Rose because he was the Coalesce guy. Okay. And we, we were friendly with Coalesce. We were fans of Coalesce. We played shows with them. And uh, Gordon from Escape Artists, prior to working at Relapse, had worked at Earache. And he was the guy who actually was responsible for coalesce and earache as far as i understand it and so he, he knew them really well and of course uh coalesce followed him over to relapse so it was all a convergence of all of those things that resulted in us going with ed rose but the other thing about ed rose that uh, a lot of people didn't understand at the time if you were a coalesce fan and you read the liner notes you're like this is the guy who does all the coalesce stuff but he really isn't a metal guy at all um 
he did, you know, the main, his main claim to fame was doing all the get up kids stuff Yeah, and Reggie and the full effect. And, um, you know, and, and it was great for us. It was kind of a perfect marriage because he understood a lot of the weird time signatures and this quote unquote noise core movement we were part of. He understood a lot of that stuff from having worked with OLS, but he also had from having worked with the get up kids and Reggie and the full effect and things like that. The anniversary, he understood the melodic side of what we were trying to achieve and, and sort of melding those two things at a time when that wasn't common. Um, he was, you know, without the benefit of autocorrect, autocorrect of autotune, uh, you know, a lot of the tricks and um, advantages that people have in the studio now, you know, this, we recorded that record in 99 or 2000. It wasn't, uh, we didn't have any of that stuff. And he really, um, broke me down as a singer over a couple of days. Like I have a vivid memory of being in the bathroom at Red House Studios going like, I shouldn't even like try to sing for bands. What am I doing here? You know, this is awful. And really honing in and helping me become a, a decent singer and, and getting those lines perfect without faking it. Um, and that made a huge, huge difference because prior to that, you know, when I was trying out doing melodic vocals for the first time, it's in our bass player's basement. You know, everyone's way louder than I am. You can barely hear. There's no like, you know, I don't have in-ears or, you know, good monitor mixes at the shows we're playing or even monitors at all sometimes. Um, the split that we did on Truskill was the first time I tried melodic vocals in the studio. And we had recorded that with a friend of ours who was essentially like an engineer who's hitting record. He's not guiding he's not producing the vocals um and the the singing is terrible you know it's like out of key pitch pitchy dog you know everything else uh luckily there's not much of it but what singing there was isn't good and thanks to ed rose um the singing on the full length is pretty good um and uh i was then able to go out and sing those songs live and kind of feel a little more confident that I, i knew what i was doing uh, so yeah, he was great. I, I can't say enough great things about him. We really enjoyed our experience with him. It wasn't very long. You know, we were there for about a week and a half, maybe less, uh, which was kind of also kind of the thing in those days, you know, yeah. <laughs> no, no one had the money to do like a, a month in the studio. You don't have time uh, to write it in the studio. You've got to get it ready to go. No. And go. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's one thing that I definitely appreciate about it too, is that we rehearsed it to death. We were, uh, we were so prepared on the musical side to just nail that stuff when we got in there. It's a huge credit to the the three other guys in the band. And we, and we actually demoed the entire album at a local studio in Indianapolis before we went to uh, Ed Rose. So yeah, we took it, we took it very seriously in that sense. We did a, an entire pre-production demo and listened back to it. And, you know, we were able to play some of that for Ed and um, yeah, we were, we definitely showed up uh, prepared in that sense. So you guys, your final show was at Hellfest in 2001, and then you reunited for a show in 2005. Is there any talks about maybe doing more shows in the future? I don't think so. You know, what's interesting about that reunion show is that that was four years after the final show, which seemed like such a long time, you know, first show in four years. And then now that reunion show was 13 years ago. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) It's crazy. Um, No. And I'll tell you why. Uh, there's a couple reasons this, I guess the, the smaller reason is uh, there's an element of like 
everyone's come back now, you know, um, I feel like the idea of coming back has kind of lost some of its novelty or it's, it's very popular right now to do a comeback or whatever. Yeah, I gotcha. Yeah. And it sort of seems like, I don't know. I feel like there's an element where people would kind of shrug and go, Oh, of course they're back too," you know? Um, but the, the main, the main reason for me is that, you know, we, the band was through the whole run, you know, every record is me on vocals and, and John Sepp's on guitar. Um, Bob Fouts was the drummer for every single show except for the first two. And he's on every single recording except for the seven inch. And then Jason McCash was really the bass, you know, he's the bass player on the full length on the split. So really, you know, we had other members early on, but the, the classic lineup, so to speak, was myself, Bob Zepps and McCash. And, uh, after burn it down, McCash went on to do a band called the gates of slumber, which, uh, Bob was actually in, uh, at different points too. And, uh, a good friend of ours, Carl Simon, who actually was burn it down's tour manager at one point, uh, was the singer vocalist for gates of slumber. And they were like, you know, they did multiple records that were in the top five and decibels year end, uh, album lists. And, uh, you know, they were on rise above records, which is Lee Dorian from cathedral and napalm death, his label. They did some real shit, you know, and, toured Europe and the U S extensively and, um, made some really incredible albums. And I was actually their manager for a while. Um, Jason, uh, passed away a few years ago. And for me, cause the idea has come up. Um, and I just, uh, you know, never say never, but I'm just not, I haven't been in a place where I've wanted to do it without McCash. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and I understand that with a lot of classic bands, you know, I, I definitely understand why some of them don't want to do it. And there's a way to do it. That's a celebration of the guy who passed away. And, you know, I, I, uh, I know, uh, without speaking out of turn, I know that Bob and Zepps are up for it because they've both suggested it before. Um, and I don't, you know, I don't begrudge them for suggesting it. Um, but yeah, I'm just not, uh, I'm not, I haven't been in a place where I've, I've wanted to do it without, you know, looking over to my left and seeing Jason. Yeah. I mean, that's completely understandable. And I mean, like you said, it's, it's so popular now for bands to come back. I mean, I, for one would love you guys to come back. So, uh, let me know when it's going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> Duly noted. <laughs> so I want to, we talked a lot about, you know, your past in the music industry. I want to talk about what you've got going on now. Uh, you host one of my favorite podcasts because it's about Metallica, Speak and Destroy. Uh, you've got a podcast network called Pop Curse and a couple other podcasts. Uh, you manage bands. I know we were talking a while back. You're uh, helping write a book with uh, Andy from Black Veil Brides, correct? Mm-hmm. So just tell me, tell me what you've got going on, man. I'm very interested. Yeah. So, uh, around 2003, I started a, a company called Superhero Artist Management, um, over the years, uh, you know, I worked with the band Tiger Army for about 10 years. I worked with the Dillinger Escape Plan. Uh, I was the only manager that lasted with them, <laughs> did a whole album cycle, uh, which was actually a band Burn It Down toured with. That was where that relationship even first began. Um, I worked with MXPX for a short amount of time. Uh, and since about 2004, I've represented uh, Throwdown and the band Demon Hunter. Um, for the last eight years or so, I also work with the producer Zeus, who um, has done stuff with Rob Zombie, Queensryche, Hatebreed, a bunch of great bands. Um, 
And yeah, and that's kind of the management side. Uh, and I also work with a band, Killer Be Killed, which is Greg from Dillinger Escape Plan, Max Cavalera, um, Troy Sanders from Mastodon, and the drummer from Converge, a uh, cool little super group on nu- Nuclear Blast, which I co-manage with uh, Gloria, who does all of Max's stuff, and with uh, our friend Nick John, who manages Mastodon and Gojira, and uh, sadly just passed away a couple months ago. Uh, but yeah, but that's essentially the management thing um, in terms of the day-to-day is really Demon Honor and Zeus that that take up the majority of the time because they're both very full-time. Uh, as, as You know, um, Demon Hunter, we've had a lot of cool things. We had a number one single, Christian Rock Radio, for six weeks on the most recent record and had their biggest uh, first-week debut of their career on their most recent record, which was album eight, which was pretty awesome. Uh, they have really, really extremely dedicated fans who get the symbol and the lyrics and everything tattooed and it's been a huge pleasure and an honor to to work with those guys and represent them. And and you know what? And that's another relationship that goes back to Burn It Down because Ryan Clark, the singer for Demon Hunter, used to play guitar in an old tooth and nail band called Focal Point. And Focal Point and Zayo played together at the Emerson Theater in Indianapolis. And that was <laughs> when I first met Ryan. That's crazy, um, man. That's that's That goes way back, huh? Way back, yeah. And, and him and his brother did a band called Training for Utopia after that and Burn It Down played with them also. Um but yeah, so that's the management side. And then, uh, yeah, I've uh, continued to be a writer, reporter, host, producer, editor um, in you know the journalism field, uh, working for a number of different outlets, covering mostly movies and TV and music and pop culture, occasionally some hard news. Um, and that's still something that I do. And I do a lot of kind of behind the scenes copywriting and and media training for different uh, record labels and things like that and bands and management companies. And yeah, and then the podcast you mentioned, uh, there's Pop Curse, which is basically conversations about everything pop culture. There is Speak and Destroy, which is a podcast about all things Metallica, where we talk about Metallica. Um, guests have included people like M. Shadows from Avenged Sevenfold, uh, Mark Morton from Lamb of God, Blasco from Ozzy Osbourne's band. Uh, Rob Flynn from Machine Head, Gary Holt from Slayer and Exodus. And then I also have a podcast called No Prize from God, which is conversations with creative people about belief, unbelief, and everything between. And basically the concept for that podcast is uh, uh, creating a space for discussions about life's big questions and different creative people, a lot of musicians, a lot of people from bands, uh, writers, playwrights, authors, um, people who work in the creative arts and have had some type of interesting walk with faith. Um, and that's of all shapes and sizes. Um, you know, so on one end of the spectrum, I've had people like Maddie from Memphis Mayfire and Ryan Clark from Demon Hunter, some great discussions about kind of their perspective. And then I've also had, uh, Dwid from Integrity, uh, Satir from Satiricon, uh, Isan from Emperor, um, you know, I had a woman named Sister Kate, who's part of the Sisters of the Valley, a.k.a. the Weed Nuns, who are nuns who live in a convent and who grow and smoke marijuana. Awesome. Um, <laughs> you know, I had a, a guy named Broderick Greer, who is a um, unapologetically black and queer Episcopal priest. Uh, it's his own self-description. Um, yeah, a lot of uh, just interesting people. You know, I had a tarot card reader who's written a lot of books about that stuff on um, just interesting people who... Um, aren't so much coming from a hard right evangelical conservative perspective or 
a militant atheist perspective. I basically wanted to fill in the gap because there's so much in the podcast space for both of those things. I wanted to create something that was just for everyone else, you know, to talk about those kind of, you know, God or no God and life and death and, um, you know, justice and good and evil and all that sort of stuff from a more, uh, from, from a perspective of less of an agenda, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, so there's that. And then, yeah, as you mentioned, I've, uh, in the process of finishing a book with Andy from Black Veil Brides and also a book with Ronnie Radke from the band Falling in Reverse. Okay. Awesome. And in both cases, it's essentially telling their stories. Um, and they both have pretty fascinating stories from different, different ends. Yeah. You were, we were talking when we first decided, you know, that you were going to come on the show, you were telling me a little bit about it. Like, man, Andy lived in his car and moved out to California very young. Like I've heard all kinds of stuff about it. I I can't wait to read the book, man. Yeah. Thanks. It's uh, he, and he's just so well-spoken and and insightful and has a lot of intelligent things to say and a lot of perspective on his own career and, and how it might translate to other people. But yeah, and he's a Midwesterner like us. He grew up in Cincinnati and, um, told his parents when I turn 18, I'm moving to Hollywood and, and doing rock and roll. And, uh, that's exactly what he did. <laughs> he, he did a good job too. <laughs> yeah. And then Ronnie, of course, uh, you know, raised by a single dad who was an outlaw biker, uh, who was, you know, using and selling drugs who then became a born again Christian and is now, a uh, uh, an officer in a Christian motorcycle club. Um, and, and, you know, Ronnie's story is, crazy and all kinds of twists and turns and addiction and compulsions and breakups and makeups. And, uh, you know, right at the height of his band escape the fate about to get signed to Interscope, um, Ronnie went to prison for two years yeah. and the band, you know, fired him and continued on with a new singer. And he sat in jail for two years stewing and plotting his revenge and came out with a new band. And, um, yeah, he has just a lot of, a lot of crazy stories and interesting tales from him. Um, the majority of which he's never really talked about in detail. Um, so that should be interesting. I think for people too, whether you love the guy, hate the guy or have never heard of him, I think his story is interesting. Any timeline on both of those books or are they just being worked on right now? I wish, uh, we tried to say one for Andy's and, uh, and then missed it. So (laughs) I can say that Andy's book is 99% done. And Ronnie's book is less complete than that, but both, I I will say both will be out in 2019. That much I do know. Awesome. Well, Ryan, I want to thank you so much for your time. Uh, I'm going to let you go because I know you're a busy guy. So, uh, do you have anything else you'd like to promote or anything you'd like to say to my listeners? Uh, yeah. If your listeners have made it this far and not died of boredom or crashed their car because we put them to sleep, um, you can find me at ryanjdowney.com. Ryan Downey on Twitter, Superhero HQ on Instagram, and uh, you can also find the podcast and everything else that I'm involved in through tracking me down there. And thanks for the opportunity to come on and talk to a fellow Hoosier. It was really cool, man. I appreciate it. And uh, when those books come out, I got to have you back. I want to talk about them. I love it. Yeah, please. That'd be great. Well, I'll talk to you later. Thanks a lot, Ryan. Thank you. 
And there it was, my conversation with Mr. Ryan J. Downey. Make sure to check out his podcast, Speak and Destroy. It's a podcast all about Metallica. I'm going to be a guest on there soon, and I cannot wait to geek out with Ryan about Metallica. So I also want to give a shout out to my buddy Dewey over at the Peer Pleasure Podcast. He took a little hiatus, but he just dropped a new episode today with Tepe from Thrice. So go support him and check it out. You can go to jabberjawmedia.com or you can just search Peer Pleasure Podcast on iTunes or wherever you consume your podcast. I also want to give a shout out to my buddy Marco over at the Zealous Musician Podcast. He just interviewed me a couple days ago for his episode on the band Thursday. And we got to talk about the music theory behind their songs. We got to talk about all kinds of cool stuff. I'm not sure when that episode is coming out, but keep your eyes peeled for it. Subscribe so you don't miss it. So uh, make sure to go support the Peer Pleasure Podcast and the Zealous Musician Podcast. Okay, that's going to do it for me. Uh, Thank you guys so much for the support. It means everything to me. And like I said, November is going to be a little spotty, but I'm going to get right back into it later on after all of this craziness in my life is uh, is nice and calm. So uh, I'm going to leave you guys with a song from Ryan's old band. The band is called Burn It Down. They're right here in Indiana is where they started. And uh, when I was young, they were like this kind of the top tier band because they were a band from Indianapolis and they were like doing it, man. They were touring and they were just, they were kicking ass. So uh, here it is Ryan J. Downey singing on this track by Burn It Down. It's Let the Dead Bury the Dead. See you next week.
One Hit Thunder is a podcast where we both celebrate and have a good laugh about bands and artists that had just one hit that we all know. Each week, we're joined by a guest from the world of music or comedy to learn more than you ever thought you would about some songs that you can't forget. And we decide if they brought the one hit thunder or were nothing more than a one hit blunder. Look, if you listen to the show, you're probably going to laugh and I guarantee you're going to crush next time the bar has music trivia. Tag Team, Jane Child, Meredith Brooks, Looking Glass, Sean Mullins, Eiffel 65, EMF, Crash Test Dummies, Crazy Town, Chumbawamba. We have hundreds of episodes in our back catalog and a new episode each week. So pass the duchy, make sure you're connected, and subscribe to One Hit Thunder wherever you get your pods.